This is Chapter 113 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. June is Audiobook Month, and this week we'll find out why audiobooks intimidate bestseller Jane Green. Debut author Tembi Locke shares what it was like to bring her heartbreaking memoir to life. Plus, we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the whole recording process. Author Jane Green is arguably one of the reigning monarchs of the summer read, and she's back with her latest page-turner, The Friends We Keep. She spoke with our Pat Farnack about long-lasting friendships and why she likes to record her own audiobooks. We so crave the idea of old friends, don't we? We do. We do. And and this is The Friends We Keep is about three friends who meet at university in the UK, um, although one of them is, is from the States. Um, they meet in the UK in the 80s and we follow them through their lives. And I... I I really thought so much about old friends and particularly the friends we meet at that magical time in our lives because it's really before we we create the constructs of of who we we decide to be as adults and and so they they really they see us as we really are and we can we go through our lives making friendships all the time but there is something very magical about the people who knew you before you decided who you were going to be and i really wanted to explore those friendships people who knew you when yeah <laughs> that's nice yeah. now uh, the 30 years friendships that you were talking about hangs in the balance because of a terrible secret. It does. And I, I can't, um, I, I have to be careful because I don't want to give any spoilers. No, but, no. But the three of them, when they meet at university, they all decide to live together and they have the most wonderful time and they swear that they'll be best friends forever and ever. But of course, life gets in the way and two of them move to the States and one stays in the UK. And, and you know, there's that lovely John Lennon quote, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. So mm. none of them end up with the lives that they expected to have, but they all lose touch. And and partly because of this one secret that really makes one of them withdraw from the other, from the others. And they lose touch and years and years go by. And finally, at their, their 30th reunion, they all find themselves at this reunion, and the minute that they're all together again, it's as if no time has passed. They're right back in their student house, and they're all on their own for various reasons, and they think, well, why why not live together again? Why don't we try this? And, and that was very much actually based on conversations my husband and I kept having with friends when we're about to be empty nesters. Mm -hmm. And every time we have dinner with friends, we say, why don't we buy a farm or a piece of land somewhere (laughs) and, and put, we all have our own little houses, a tiny house. And then we have a communal barn and, and we can cook together and hang out together, but also have our own space. And that was really, that was how the book came about. I thought, well, I'm not quite ready to do this in reality, but I can certainly write a book about people who do. Now, also in The Friends We Keep, an addiction thread sort of runs through the book, first of all, with uh, Evie and her food addiction and alcohol with Evil Ben. Yes. So I've tackled the topic of addiction many times um, Mm -hmm. in my books, and um, I, I didn't have to 
to uh, research quite as much with this one, but I have... I Oh, I love an alcoholic and an addict. They're my favorite people. <laughs> if you put me into a room with a thousand people, I guarantee you I will find the three alcoholics and addicts and, and we will be laughing until the early hours of the morning. Um, I really like people who have had those kinds of struggles and I really relate to them. Um, and, and whatever their relationship it is, you know, whether they are actively drinking, whether they are recovering, um, um, you know, whether this is an issue from the past, I, I, it is the flaws that make people most interesting to me. I never planned on tackling these. I, I didn't go into this book even thinking. I, I knew that, that Ben had a drinking problem. I, I, Evie, I, I didn't think would have as full-on an eating disorder as she ended up having um, because it, 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 it's just, for me, it's part of the fabric of, of, of life. Yes. Um, and just as the characters, as I was developing them, as I was writing them, the, the, they just came up. These things came up and became bigger than I had anticipated. Well, for 30 years, uh, Evie uh, thought that the guy who got away was this this perfect man, only to find out that she had been deluding herself. Yes. It's making me think um, of a book that I'm reading right now. I've actually just finished that I think is about to come out that is so oh. wonderful. And it's called Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. And it's a oh. journalist who spent 10 years with three women researching their their desires actually and and all three women are having affairs or have had affairs of some description and she follows them and goes into great detail and one of them is is having an affair with um with a, a love of hers from when she was a teenager and we as the observer can see that this is this is so wrong and this is so if they are so ill matched there is nothing about this that is good plus he he is she's really luring him in all the time um and what's so fascinating is is because it's non-fiction this woman believes to her core that he is the one that got away and they are destined to to spend the rest of their lives together um and it, it was just so fascinating, and, and, and that's exactly what Evie feels about, about this man, that, that he really was the perfect man, and, and she doesn't know until years later about his flaws, and, and that, in fact, he, he had anything happened long-term, he would have been exactly the same as, as all of her other disastrous relationships. Forgiveness is a theme, too, uh, and, an, and an issue, not only uh, for uh, Ben not being able to forgive Evie, uh, or so he said, and then forgiveness uh, later on without giving too much of the story away. And I, I, I loved that because it's it's so necessary in, no matter who you are in life. Yes. Well, I, and I think that, that forgiveness becomes something that we all open ourselves up to much more as we age. Um, you know, when we're, when we're younger, we, we can stand on our soapbox and feel very stridently and strongly about things and particularly people behaving badly and people making mistakes. And then I, I think you hit middle age and you realize that we are... We are all suffering 
in some way. You know, however perfect our lives look on Instagram, um, <laughs> we are all, once you hit middle age, everybody has gone through hardships and yes. we all make mistakes. And, and I think we become, if we're lucky, much more accepting. You also, I understand, voiced the audiobook of The Friends We Keep. What was that like? Well, I, I've actually um, narrated the last, ooh, the last, seven or eight books of mine. Oh, I um, did not know first, that, yeah. Yeah, my publisher wouldn't let me do it. They said, oh, Jane, every author wants to narrate her own books, and they're always terrible. It's a bad idea. <laughs> Thank and, you very much, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I said, well, I, you know, could I at least audition? And um, so I live in Westport, Connecticut, and this this producer who was very grumpy, she showed up. My husband went to the door and said, oh, Jane's so excited about this. And she said, oh, every author thinks they can do it, and they're always terrible terrible. Um, But then as she was recording me, I watched her face change and I got the job. So I I do narrate my own books. I absolutely love it because I think the author brings something to it that that an actor just can't. I mean, I have, I, I created these characters. I know everything about them, even the things that aren't on the page. Um, I will say I'm always a little bit intimidated by having to do an American accent and some because I do because I just I didn't in the in my early books but now I think well that's ridiculous I I can't have these Americans suddenly sounding as if they live in Buckingham Palace so <laughs> um so I try, and I do have an American husband and American children I've lived here for 18 years <sighs> but my American accent is um well, it's moody. It's, you know, sometimes it's in a great mood and I sound really authentic and other times it's disastrous. So you never quite know. Um, it depends on the, not even the day, it depends on the hour. So I go in and out and I'm a little bit um, mortified by that, but I do my best. Well, how about Americans uh, trying English accents? Come on. That's pretty bad too well, most of the time. Uh, uh, yes, mostly that they're, they're pretty terrible. What's really funny is my husband, um, whose grandparents on one side were English. Oh. He does a very, very good posh English accent. So he can, he does, you know, oh, darling, would you like to go for a car? You know, shall we go for a little tootle in the car? And he sounds amazing. But then he tries every now and then to do a Cockney English accent. And he sounds like a, an even worse Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins. Just really bad. Oh, oi, oi, oi. And it just, and I always have to, I cringe and say, please stop. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed The Friends We Keep. I think it's the perfect beach read. It was oh. lovely. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us oh, today. Thank you for having me, Pat. We've been talking with Jane Green, author of The Friends We Keep. In her memoir, From Scratch, actress Tembi Locke gives readers access to the best and worst times of her life. Hers is a story of love at first sight, family estrangement and reconciliation, professional and personal highs, and premature death. I couldn't imagine writing such a personal story for the world to read, let alone recording it. She tells me why it was important she be the one to tell us her story. It was difficult, but the thing that felt most um, that I felt most compelled to do was to um, really approach the audiobook as though it were like a letter to a close friend, or I'm just sitting around talking to a friend and telling my story. And because the book toggles between 
you know, Italian and Sicilian and English and there's the little East Texas, you know, sort of dialect. I felt like, you know, for it to really be authentic, it needed to be not only in my voice, but also really, you know, sort of emanating from my heart. So I really wanted to to record it because I wanted to sort of imprint that part of the book, um, you know, the audio part of the book, you know, in my heart. <laughs> I'm laughing because um, my maternal grandfather was from Sicily, and I'm sure that there's oh, gosh. <laughs> there, I'm sure that there's some people out there who are asking Italian Sicilian aren't they the same language? And they're really not. No, gosh, no, no, no. Different conjugation, different rules, grammar rules, articles, you know, verbs. It's it's different. I mean, there's there's definitely connection, but it's it's a different language. <laughs> so, what was the process of recording like for you? Well, you know, I have to say I was a little nervous about it, even with 20 years, you know, as an actor. Um, I had never recorded an audiobook before, so I sat with the producers. We actually talked ahead of time before I went into the studio and, you know, kind of game planned how we would approach the material because I understood the emotional landscape to terrain that I would have to cross in order to, you know, read the story again, which would kind of be my first time really sitting with the story start to finish, you know, in a continuous straight line, you know, after having written it and edited it and whatnot. So after I talked to the producers, I felt really comfortable about going into the studio and they made it so incredibly gentle. We, um, you know, we would record a little bit in the morning and then take a break. And um, I have to say it was really special for me um, to be able to hold the story so close and so intimately. And, you know, I brought sort of, you know, what I call talismans into the studio with me to sort of, you know, kind of help anchor me. I had a picture of Sato in there. I, um, you know, had pictures from Sicily so that as I was reading it, I was really allowing myself to be there. And then my daughter came in and and listened to me record one day. So it really felt like a family affair. So let's back up a little bit for our listeners. Tell us about the love story that's at the heart of this book. The romantic love story at the heart of the book begins with when I meet or met my husband, late husband, Sato. Um, I was a college co-ed studying abroad, you know, college exchange program in Florence, Italy. And, you know, I'm not giving anything away to say that we, I was walking down the street and I bumped into him. And that moment, that chance meeting changed my life. Uh, of course, I, you know, I didn't know it, it would at the time. Um, but um, in retrospect, I can see it definitely did. And that love story of meeting Sato and the way in which he inducted me into this kind of great love, you know, um, and then it, the book traces the both beginning of that relationship through the upstart of our marriage and launching careers and sort of challenges with his family um, and all the things we're sort of overcoming obstacles at the beginning of our relationship and then through his diagnosis, caregiving, parenting, and of course his, his passing. So it's sort of a really epic sweep of this love that begins, quite frankly, you know, near Gelateria in Florence um, with this amazing, you know, heart-centered man. After his passing, you returned to his native Sicily with your daughter, and that trip was important for her to learn and get to know her father's family, but it was also important for you. What did it teach you? Oh, gosh, it taught me so many things. Um, and I tried to spend a book, you know, sort of writing about all the things that I gleaned and learned from those, those that first summer and then the subsequent summers. But at the heart, what I learned um, around grief is, one, Sicily is a fantastic 
place to sort of heal the soul, right? For me, um, this one village, small town, a small, very t- uh, small town in the foothills of of mountains in the interior of Sicily, and there, in the quiet of that space, in with the sun and the wind and the sea, and you know, fresh food and and the love of my mother-in-law, and a town, quite frankly, a small town of people who all knew my late husband and who all kind of welcomed me into their arms. I could not have imagined a more soothing um, and evocative place to be and a place that would allow me to kind of heal and my daughter to heal in a new way, which I did not expect. Um, And then the other thing about it was sort of how we began to learn to forge family anew, because although we had done a lot of repair work in our relationship, it was not a foregone conclusion that we would be able to sort of sustain the closeness of family across geography, space, time, age, culture, language, and also the fact that the person who connected us was no longer with us. Um, and so those that first summer is really kind of a first toe in the water, if you will, of testing out, could we still stay close? Could we still be family after loss? Tell me how cheese making is like grief. Oh, thank you for that question. I love that. So in um, in this you know small town in Sicily, um, I meet the cheesemaker. I read about this in the book. And um, I, and because Sada was a chef and we eat this delicious pecorino cheese all the time, you know, when we're, when we're in Sicily, it, it dawned on me. I was like, oh, I really want to learn how to make this cheese. And I really wanted Zoella, our daughter, to be able to participate in making, you know, cheese. I mean, when am I ever going to do that in Los Angeles? <laughs> right? So what I learned in the process of observing um, this wonderful cheesemaker and her daughter and my daughter and a friend all make this cheese was the way in which it is both um, the pressure of the salting, the squeezing. It's the ways in which the actual physical um, way that you make cheese really, to me, in that moment, reminded me of what it means to sort of remake a life right, to take these sort of ingredients that are raw and then turn them into something else, that it in some way the pressure that gets applied in the process of making ricotta salata kind of for me in my own way felt like the pressure that was being applied on me to remake me as a newly widowed woman. And so I sort of riff on that or sort of use my imaginings around that in that one chapter of the book. And um, and I, I absolutely love ricotta salata, so it's incredible. <laughs> you know, I, I'm... I can't help but be struck by the fact that at a, at a time in your life when I think a lot of people want to retreat into themselves and, and, and kind of disappear into the crowd, you went to a place where, because it's, it's so small, you're the outsider, you're the American woman, and you can't, you can't really disappear. Everybody knows who you are, but that's where you found your strength and where you found the best place to heal. Yeah, it it you know I, I couldn't take flight. That's the thing about you know about being in Sicily and in this town is that in the, in in as 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 sort of counterintuitive as it sounds to be in a deep state of grieving when a lot of times we do want to flee from the pain or be relieved of the pain or. Or, you know, in my case, sometimes I just wanted to wake up five years into the future and mm-hmm. I felt that my heart might ache a little less. 
ironically, by going into the heart of that pain, which is to go to my late husband's hometown, where everyone is an extended relative, where I see his face in the face of all these people, where I'm in his childhood home, to go right into the heart of the matter became a kind of a place that I actually could stand in my own strength and could learn a great deal. And I didn't know that that would happen. And and that also taught me that by by not fleeing or avoiding or turning away from the very central life path that I was on, which was, which was a deep, deep grief, um, that there was something to, that there was something, there was a strength I gathered in that process. And I, I didn't know that, that that could happen or would happen, but it did. I think it's also very obvious in this book that the two of you had a deep passion for food. You mentioned yeah. <laughs> that your late husband was a chef. Um, has how you feel about food and cooking changed in the years since his death? Oh, what a wonderful question. Yes, it has. Um, you know, I, I still, listen, I spent two decades with a chef. And so to some degree, I will always sort of feel that that loss, right? I can't recreate that. I am not uh, I am not a professional chef. It's 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 not my space. Although I enjoy being a home cook now because of my years spent with him, but I do miss that. I miss him. I miss the ways in which he could, you know, literally transform and put poetry on a plate, right, <laughs> with food. And so I just kind of, you know, there are times when there are times when it's more acute. There's times when I simply say, you know, and I try to write about this in the book, the way in which I sort of, when I'm in the kitchen, try to draw on all all of that that I learned and, and approximated as best I can. Um, but I think the legacy, and, and now seven and a half years after his passing, what I really find that I enjoy most is when I have a deliciously good meal and I think about, oh, he would love this right now, you know, and we would sort of unpack or, you know, sort of deconstruct what's happening here and not in the way like that you see on television on, the, you know, the Food Network, but really in just a heartfelt way and appreciate those moments. And of course, when I travel and I'm engaging in a new place and new cuisines, I often draw upon how he did that, you know, and I try to think of it in that way. So that's kind of how food, you know, how how I engage with great meals, how that's changed since his passing. And you've included recipes in the book. I have. I have. You can't be married to a chef and write a memoir of food <laughs> and, such, and not have not have some of, you know, of, of both his recipes and also my mother-in-law's. You know, I wanted, I hope, my hope would be that someday down the line, my daughter or her friends or her, if she chooses to have kids, you know, down the line, the, they may make some of these same dishes. So there becomes this sort of continuity if you will, um, between him and, and, and Sicily and wherever she may find herself in the world. What do you want readers to take away from your personal story? Um, I think what I would like is two things. Um, well, actually many things, but, but two I'll say today. One is that I think, I hope that it ignites a kind of bravery in all of its forms in, 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 in the hearts of others because Sato ignited that in me and so many people that I've touched along the way have, have helped me to step into, you know, I use the term bravery, but it's really an open-hearted space. Um, and so I hope that they take that away, that maybe it sparks something within them. And the other thing is that this sort of understanding that <clears throat> we are all far greater and more connected, right, than we think we are. And that um, transcends time, space, even death, certainly geography and language.
We've been talking with Tembi Locke. Her book is From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home. Thank you so much for, for chatting oh. with us today. Oh, my gosh. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So what exactly is the audiobook recording process like? For that, we turn to my news colleague, Martin Untreup, who, in addition to writing the news for 880 Every Morning, is an established voice actor who records audiobooks. He was gracious enough to answer all the questions I had. I think some people may think, oh, recording an audiobook, I can totally do that. You just have to read the book out loud, but it's not that simple, is it? Yeah, not exactly. It's, um, It's a lot of different things. It's a lot of preparation. Um, it's reading the book in advance, it's researching, uh, and then when you're reading, it seems simple enough, oh, I'm just reading, but it's not, because depending on the subject, depending if it's fiction, nonfiction, you may have to play, you're not just the reader or the narrator, you are everyone. Imagine you're doing a movie, so now you are the director, you're the actor, you are the stage directions, you are everything. Uh, and it's not easy because in your head, you're sort of reading, but at the same time, you're kind of like splitting your brain into two because you're reading a little ahead, not out loud, but in your head. You're looking ahead to see what else is coming up because if it's a different voice, then you need to figure out, okay, I need to switch voices and there's a lot that goes into it. I know you do a mix of the prep work. Some of it, you have digital copies of Mm -hmm. the book you're reading. Sometimes you have hard copies. Mm -hmm. Do you mark up the copy like we do with news copy? I do. And what I do is for a a couple of things. Usually I, I prefer to read on an iPad. And the reason for that, one of them is that when you're recording an audiobook, if you're reading from a physical book, Every time you have to turn the page, you have to stop. So that's number one. That automatically... Something you don't even think about. Right. You can't hear that. It slows down the process. You have to hold the pages. It, it becomes an issue. Um, so the advantage is that you can just scroll, and as long as you're not making mistakes, then you just keep reading. But the other thing is that you can highlight words. You can do like little post-its. So as you're reading... and uh, you see that there's a post-it coming up, you can just punch it, still be able to read, and you can have either a pronouncer or you can have what I like to do at the beginning if it's a fictional book is that I like to cast it. So I will say, okay, who is this character? If I was putting together a movie, who would play that? Okay, it's uh, George Clooney. I'm not going to impersonate George Clooney. But in your head, it triggers an image of what that character might be like, an attitude, um, the way they they speak, rhythm, whatever it might be. So you put that in there, and that helps you play that character throughout the book. That can be very helpful when you're doing an 800-page book. And there's someone who shows up in chapter one, and you don't hear from them until chapter 23, and you don't remember what voice you did at the beginning. Now, maybe the person listening to the book doesn't remember either. But if they do, (laughs) and the idea is that you want it to be as good as it can be, you want to have 
something that triggers that voice and that response. Let's say you're you're having to audition for this 800-page book. Mm-hmm. Are you required to give your take on the main characters, or is it just a straight read? How do they determine that? No, usually when you audition, you're actually probably not even auditioning on the material that you will be reading. So uh, either they will listen to something that you've previously recorded. For example, there was an author who um, she had written many books and she listened to my voice and she said, oh my God, that's the voice that I hear in my head when I write, you know, she wrote these historical novels and the character, even though they're different books, there's a certain character that seems to be always the lead. And for whatever reason, I was that voice that she always heard in her head. So she picks me for that, and then after that, then you go with with you know the directions. You're working with an audio editor. You're working with a, with a director usually who can coach you and and take you in the direction that you need to go. But you're not auditioning f- with the actual uh, source. Sometimes you do, but it's it's rare. They usually cast for the voice. When it comes time for recording, is it just you and the person doing the recording? Uh, it's usually me sitting in a booth and there's a little window and there's one other person on the other side and that person serves a couple of purposes. That person is the audio engineer. He's also the proofreader because he's following the book as I read and will stop me if I make a mistake so, or if, if I make a mistake or if there's something, there was noise or whatever it might be. Uh, once that's recorded, then that has to go to another person who does the quality control and has to listen to the whole thing and make sure that, okay, we didn't miss anything. And then if there are pickups or corrections, then we have to do that again. So you can have a, a few people in, in that process. But in the room, usually it's just me and one other person. Now, people who regularly listen to audiobooks, they know how long they can be. They range, you know, like a 300-something page book can be around 10 hours or so. Mm-hmm. We working in radio know that the finished product is always much less than the raw product. How many hours are we talking about for like a 300-page book? Usually you do four-hour sessions, and depending on the the material really determines how much you can record in that in that session. Um, the average good reader will probably record two hours of audio for every four. So half the time. Um, if you can do more, that's great because then it cuts down. It works for better for everyone. For you as a reader, because you can do more books in, in less time, it also works better for the studios because they can produce more books in less time as well. But it really depends. Sometimes you have a book that is written great and it just flows and you're reading and suddenly, you know, there's a noise, you make a mistake and the audio engineer is like, hey, you just went 38 minutes without stopping. And that's great. And you don't notice it. And then there are other books that are more technical or have words in other languages 
or whatever might be the case, or sometimes they are not edited correctly and they have typos and mistakes that you kind of have to figure out uh, because the author is not always there. Um, so that slows down everything. And I know something else that pops up, not so, not too often, mm-hmm. are books, maybe the, the nonfiction type with graphs and charts and photos. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a big problem, especially because a lot of the books that I do are for the um, Library of Congress, which one of the main reasons for that is for people who are blind. So clearly they're not seeing the book, and you don't want to rob them of the ability of seeing everything that's in there. So you need to, in a way, translate something that was put together for the eye and convert it for the ear. And that's not always easy. Uh, Recently, I did a financial book where they had stock charts and things that could not be explained well because it just becomes even more difficult than if I don't mention them at all, but you can leave them out. In some books... They're easy because if there's like a photo, there's usually a uh, footnote that you just read that or a description. Uh, Sometimes the author or the publisher will put a note that says uh, added information charts or things like that that were included in the printed version will not be included in the audio. So that makes your life easier. Same thing when you get to references. A reference, if you're reading a book and there's a a link for a website, then that's fine. You can see it. You can read it. But if you're reading it for someone who cannot see and that link for an article is like three pages long. You have and you to read it out loud? It depends on the book. Wow. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. And usually the thinking is if there's a footnote or a... Um, some sort of annotation that adds some other element of information, then we read it. But if it's just a source, then no, because it it just makes it more complicated. So if you're going to read the footnote, do -hmm. you read it where it comes in the text, where it's referenced, or do you do the, like, you get to the bottom of the page and then you mention a footnote? You kind of have to find a spot... If it's not at the end of a sentence, then no. I'll see the little number there, you know, one, whatever it is. And I'll keep going to where I feel like as a reader, it would make sense to stop. Then you pause and you say note one if there's a number or note from the author. Sometimes there's a note from the translator if it's in another language. Then you read the note. And then you say, end of the note. And then you pick up where you left off. It's kind of like when people want to quote someone and they'll say, quote, yeah. end quote. Sure, yeah. And we should mention something we haven't mentioned up until this point is that you actually do these books in Spanish. That is correct. Spanish is my native language. So I've done some work in English, but because I, I do have a slight accent, Uh, Some days it's more than slight. (laughs) It depends on the day. Not today. (laughs) Uh, But I do everything in in Spanish. And really it's it's also because it's it's a market that is growing and is not 
the pool of talent, there's a lot of talented people in New York um, and all over the U.S. where the books are, are recorded. But a lot of the people who speak Spanish, who came here as kids, let's say, or who were born here to Spanish-speaking families, because they've spent more time with English, they have more of a difficulty reading it, uh, whereas I came here when I was 15. So most of my formative years were in Spanish, and I came here without knowing English. So for me, Spanish is still my number one language, and I, I, I can read it without a problem. I didn't learn it just from listening. Right. Uh, so it it makes it easier for me to to read and to be able to tackle big books that otherwise some people who may speak the language and sound great, but they may not be able to do a whole long book. So like me, we mm. read for work. Yes. Do you read for fun anymore? I do. I, uh, I don't think that uh, there's ever been a book that I was not interested in reading. And, and that's part of the fun of doing audiobooks, that I don't get to pick them. Someone picks them for me, so I don't know what I'm going to be reading next. And I can go from a financial book to someone's biography that I maybe never heard of or I was always interested in finding out more about to a book about, like now I'm reading a, an Anne Rice book about Ramses and Cleopatra in like, you know, the 20th century. And I don't know what's next. But it, while I'm doing that, it, it does cut into my time for reading other things. But I'm always interested in, in, in reading other books. And I, I think on average between what I read on my own and what I record, I can easily read 150 books a year. So. We, we should start counting, have a little competition going. <laughs> <laughs> You'd probably win. I think you read more than I do. <laughs> a book to, or two a week. <laughs> having, having to read a book twice, because like when you record it, you have to pre-read it, and then you have to read it out loud, cuts into my time for reading other books. So what I found is that having to read books for work, mm -hmm. I take notes so I can do interviews, you're reading them twice, mm -hmm. I retain them more now. I I do with some. Some books are really, I, I read them and I'm interested in them, but because it's more of a process and and I need to finish them to get to the next one, I don't get the luxury of spending time as I would with a book that I just chose to read where I can stop and think about it or go back and reread something that I like or... I have to keep moving. It's homework. In a way, yes. And sometimes I'm reading a book and because I'm I know that I'm like closer to the end, I'm already starting to read the next one. So you really don't have time to really digest it. You're you're just moving from one to the next. Well, Martin, thank you for coming in giving our listeners a little bit of the behind the scenes you're look welcome. at their favorite audiobooks <laughs> and how they're put together. Sure, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Muchas gracias. De nada. <laughs> 
And that's this week's show. I hope you enjoyed our little dive into audiobooks. And here's a fun fact. It's the fastest growing book format, outpacing print and eBooks. Something to think about. Next time around, we welcome back Brad Thor. If you aren't already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.